Our reading tonight is from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to chapter 6, verse 9. Beginning at verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In, a, in this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you, and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favour when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one, of you, each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Here ends the reading, and I'll pray now for Lauren as she brings us the sermon. Father, thank you that you give us your word uh, to grapple with, to lead us, to show us how to live for you. And thank you that you give us your spirit to help us understand it, to wrestle and, and um, discern what it is for our lives uh, and how we can best serve and worship and delight in you and your word. Thank you for Lauren and the work that you have that she has put into this sermon uh, and the movement of your spirit in her as she has prepared it. I pray that you would give her words to speak tonight um, that would challenge and convict us and that we would learn from this passage uh, and listen to it with eyes and ears open. Prayerless in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm, amen. Thank you, Miriam. Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, well, I don't know about you, but for me, when it comes to reading the Bible, I find that there are just certain passages of Scripture that I cannot read without hearing certain tunes or inflections in my head because of their cultural associations. Maybe some of you experienced this too. Uh, for example, I cannot read Lamentations 3, 23 without internally singing the chorus to Great is Thy Faithfulness, where the lyrics are drawn from. Uh, or from my many years of Sunday school and Colin Buchanan indoctrination, I cannot read Isaiah 53, 6 without filling in the refrain of ba 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 do ba ba. 
And then for today's passage in Ephesians 5, I will forever hear these words in the inimitable cadence of Stockard Channing from the TV show The West Wing. Now, are there any other West Wing fans here on the Zoom tonight? I see those hands. It's a great show if you're looking for a lockdown binge. Very wholesome. Well, for those who may not be familiar with the show, there is just this wonderful scene between uh, the president, played by Martin Sheen, and the first lady, played by Stockard Channing, where they have returned from church and they're discussing the sermon that they've just heard. Unfortunately, due to copyright reasons, I cannot play the clip for you here. Um, so you will just have to put up with my best Stockard Channing impersonation. Clearly, this is what I went to Bible college for. Um, so anyway, the president is grumbling, he's complaining about the sermon, uh, but the first lady is defending the preacher. And she says, just with this iconic phrasing, it was a perfectly lovely homily on Ephesians 5.21. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. To which the president then responds, yeah, she's skipping over the part that says, wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And she says, I do skip over that part because it's stupid. Now, while I certainly don't condone the practice of calling the word of God stupid, um, I do think there is some truth to the idea that there are those passages of scripture that we can be tempted to just skip over or put in the too hard basket because we just don't quite know how to reconcile them. And look, maybe just like fictional First Lady Abby Bartlett, Ephesians 5 is one of those for you too. And look, to be fair, it is something of a hermeneutical minefield. I mean, we've got gender roles, marriage, parenting, slavery. I will confess, full disclosure, when I first saw my name on the preaching roster for this passage, I cringed, felt like I'd drawn the short straw on the preaching team. Uh, but actually, in sitting with this text uh, in preparation for tonight, um, I found it to be a really enriching experience. Uh, it's been a reminder that when we might feel that impulse to, to skip over something in the Bible, it can actually be an opportunity for us to dig in. You know, when scripture makes us uncomfortable, it can be important to sit with the discomfort, you know, to prod it a little bit, understand its nature, its shape. What is it that's challenging us? And how might it be an opportunity for God to speak to us afresh? You know, one thing that I do when I find myself challenged by a text is to start by asking, what am I bringing to this reading? What am I bringing to this reading? Like what personal or cultural bias, what emotional baggage, what social context, what life experience is impacting the way that I am receiving these words? Because we don't read scripture in a vacuum, do we? And I think it's, it's really important for us to be cognizant of what it is that we are bringing to the table as we receive the word of God. And for these verses in Ephesians in particular, there is some heavy cultural baggage. I think it's important to acknowledge upfront the unfortunate and stark reality that misappropriation of these verses has been used to justify some truly horrendous behavior. Not only have people in recent history pointed to these verses as justification for owning slaves, uh, but the language of submission to husbands has been grossly misinterpreted and decontextualized to the point of being a catalyst for domestic violence and abuse. 
you know, here in the West, we're living in what's being called the, the Me Too era. We've had this increasing awareness and social dialogue about issues of consent and gender inequality and particularly the abuses of male power and privilege. And many women are angry. Many women are hurting. There are deep scars. There are raw wounds. And there is still a long way to go. So in light of all this, perhaps it's no wonder that reading words like wives submit to your husbands might be a little hard for some of us to stomach on face value. But crucially, taking isolated verses at face value is horrible exegesis. Uh, it's not at all how we should read the Bible. So we need to make sure that we do the work to understand the true heart of this passage, to humbly lay down our biases and our baggage, uh, to prayerfully approach the scripture and be attentive to what it is the Spirit is speaking to us. So when it comes to understanding this passage, we first need to consider context. So we've already talked a little about the cultural lens with which we are coming to the passage today as 21st century Christians in the West. But now we need to take a moment to consider how these verses would have landed in their original cultural context. And this starts with something we refer to as the Greco-Roman household codes. In the early Greco-Roman culture, the household was basically the, the central social unit, the foundational key for a functioning and flourishing society. Uh, many an ancient philosopher gave significant airtime to the importance of the household and its crucial hierarchical structure, uh, perhaps most famously Aristotle, um, but also all the way back to first century philosophers like Philo and Josephus. And according to the norms of the Greco-Roman culture, the head of the household was the man, and he was to rule over his slaves, his children, and his wife. And this patriarchal structure was in many ways considered the backbone of a prosperous and peaceful society. You know, to deviate from this would have been unfathomably radical, perhaps even borderline treasonous. But this is the context that Paul is speaking into here. So when Paul sets out these instructions for Christian households, as it says in the subheading, it's not as though he's unveiling some brand new, never seen before template for households. Like he's not drawing up a whole new societal structure from a blank canvas. Instead, he's calling people to kingdom living within the structures that already existed. He uses that familiar patriarchal household framework to speak gospel truth into our relationships with one another. And this Gospel redemption of traditional roles is most evident in the way that Paul addresses the typical power holders in these pairings. You see that husbands are not instructed to rule over their wives, but to love them sacrificially, giving themselves up for their spouse. Fathers are cautioned to be mindful of the needs of their children. Masters are exhorted to treat their slaves well. And all of these instructions are grounded in the truth of Jesus. Eugene Peterson explores this really well in his book, Practice Resurrection, and I'd love to just read this excerpt from him now. He says, the cultural details involved in household and workplace are enormously complex. 
Most people have a home. Most people go to work. But given the wide range of cultures in which home life and work life are formed, how can Paul possibly tell us how to go about the practice of resurrection in our various cultures and settings? Well, we see right off the bat that beyond a few general considerations, he doesn't. He doesn't give detailed advice or counsel. He doesn't hand out official Christian counsel on how to raise our children or get along with our spouses. What he does is replace our understanding of our already culturally defined roles with a Christ-defined role. Every aspect of our family and work life is redefined in relation to Christ. Let me just read that last bit again. What Paul does is replace our understanding of our already culturally defined roles with a Christ-defined role. Every aspect of our family and work life is redefined in relation to Christ. And this is the language we see throughout the passage, isn't it? I mean, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Parents, bring up your children in the Lord. Slaves, serve your masters as if serving the Lord. Masters, treat your slaves likewise as you both serve the same Lord. It's clear that the emphasis in these verses is not about laying out some fixed hierarchical template for power and authority in our relationships, but rather about calling each individual to a Christ-centered gospel-motivated heart. The cornerstone of this whole passage is really that opening verse, verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's a call to humility and it's a two-way street. Your slaves were to obey and respect their masters, serving them wholeheartedly as though working for the Lord. But masters were also exhorted to treat their slaves in this same way, to humbly recognize that both master and slave were ultimately serving the same master in heaven. It's an affirmation of the divinely bestowed work of both parties. Similarly, children are to honor and obey their parents But parents are also encouraged to be mindful of their child's needs. Do not exasperate your children, Paul says. Don't give them cause to be angry with how you treat them. Again, affirming the individual worth on both sides of the relationship. And then we have marriage where, yes, wives are called to submit to their husbands. But in the very next breath, husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And how did Christ love the church? He laid down his life. He lovingly surrendered. There is simply no mandate in scripture for husbands to do whatever they want, to disregard the needs of their wives and overpower them. But nor is it suggested that wives then assume a place of power instead. No, by using this this rich analogy of Christ and the church to frame his discussion on marriage Paul is emphasizing that the marriage relationship is not meant to be defined by power and control, but sacrificial love and service. It's a call to mutual submission, to humility, to loving surrender, and all under the ultimate lordship of Christ. 
you know, in many ways, all this language of humility and submission is very countercultural for us today because it really goes against the grain of Western individualism, you know, where it's each person for themselves and where we're constantly told to ask, well, what's in it for me? You know, and I think sometimes that thinking can even creep into our application of these verses. And the concept of mutual submission starts to look more like transactional submission. You know, I'll serve you if you serve me. I'll prioritize your needs if you prioritize mine first. And we can even become a bit like Abby Bartlett in the West Wing, you know, ready to gloriously rhapsodize about how our needs are going to be met by the sacrificial love of another, but choosing to skip over the part about how we too are being called to humbly serve and submit. This is something that I've been challenged to think about in my own marriage recently. And while I'd love to claim that said challenge came to me while I was reading some deep and meaningful theological book, uh, it actually came as I was listening to a comedy podcast about parenting. Uh, and one of the podcast hosts was discussing uh, the pitfalls of what he called the most tired, not tired debate. Uh, basically, this idea in marriage, quite relevant to parents of young children, uh, that if you're not the most tired partner, then you're not allowed to be tired at all. Like it's either most tired or not tired. Uh, and when I listened to this discussion, I suddenly felt so seen. <laughs> and I thought of all the mornings where Simon might mention to me that he was tired and me having been up all night with our daughter, just wouldn't want to hear it. And like, it's not as though he was even complaining to me or expecting me to do anything about it or to do anything for him. He would always frame it so apologetically, you know, any admission from him of, oh, I'm a bit tired or I've got a headache would always immediately be qualified by him saying, oh, I know you had a much harder night. Like, I'm not trying to compare myself to you. Like, I know you're exhausted. And even so, I still just had no time for it. <laughs> like in my head, without really being conscious of it, I was just drawing that line, you know, well, if you're not the most tired, then you're not tired. I don't want to hear it and I don't care. <laughs> but wow, I mean, this is just such a, a flawed ideology, you know, like the idea that if you're not objectively having the worst time, that you are then somehow ineligible for any sympathy or compassion for whatever it is you're going through. I mean, it starts to turn the relationship into a competition, you know, and suddenly instead of prioritizing the needs of the other, you are comparing their needs against yours. You're passing judgment on their needs and perhaps even invalidating their needs altogether. You bring an expectation to be served, but not a willingness to serve. And look, of course, due to particular life circumstances, there will be those seasons where one party of a relationship is going to be more equipped or capable to serve the other. There will be times where the needs of one are more pressing than the other. But as Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 13, love does not keep score. We are not called to transactional submission, but mutual submission. We're not meant to be asking what's in it for me, but rather what can I bring? What can I offer? How can I serve? I love how Paul puts it in Philippians 2, where he says, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you 
to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. You see, this call to humility, it goes beyond just husbands and wives, parents, children, slaves, masters. It's the call on all our lives as followers of Jesus to lay down our lives for each other as Christ laid down his life for us. So I want to ask you tonight, where is God calling you to surrender? As you consider your relationships with others at the moment, be it your spouse, your family members, your friends, your housemates, your work colleagues, where might God be challenging you to prioritize the needs of another? What name is God maybe putting on your heart right now? Is there somewhere in your relationships where you have perhaps been stubbornly digging your heels in and focusing more on your expectation to be served rather than to serve? Where are you hearing this call to humility tonight? Look, before we finish, I want to just take a moment to step back and look at the bigger picture here. Our whole Ephesians series is called Your Place in God's Plan. And for weeks now, we've been hearing about God's magnificent plan for us, you know, from chapter one, reminding us that we've been blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. You know, chapter two, reminding us that we're saved by grace and purposed in Christ to do good works. Chapters three into four are casting this glorious supernatural vision for the church. And then the letter has shifted gears a little. And we started this last week with Miriam's message with attention now turning to more of the practical matters of living out this faith. And it's a reminder that even as we hear these magnificent and lofty visions of God's plans and purposes, you know, it reminds us that we're not called to some sort of disembodied spiritual existence, but a lived in faith that has real world implications. You know, it's more than just church and what we do on Sundays. You know, it's all encompassing. So it has implications for our homes, for our marriages, our families, our relationships, our workplaces. And that's really what we've been drilling down to here in these verses. You know, it's not been an abrupt subject change or some disconnected tangent in the middle of Paul's letter. You know, it flows out of all that has come before it. And I think one of the through lines that we can draw across all these chapters of Ephesians is that unity cannot exist without humility. Unity cannot exist without humility. You know, unity and humility have been these recurring themes in Ephesians so far. You know, when Paul talked about salvation in chapter two, he reminded us that we're saved by grace through faith, not by works so that no one can boast. Humility. There's this extensive dialogue about the reconciliation of Jew and Gentile together. You know, one is not greater than the other. None is to lord it over the other. They are now the one body. Unity. Humility. You know, we've heard about how the church's purpose is the embodiment of, of the unifying work of Christ. We've been exhorted to kindness, to love one another as members of the one united body. 
And now here we've reached this discourse on husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and slaves, and underpinning all of it is that same principle. Unity cannot exist without humility. As members of the one body, we are called to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Our relationships to one another are not characterized by power and authority, but loving surrender. We are called to humble ourselves, not looking to our own interests, but to the interests of others. And the foundation of this submission, it's reverence for Christ. It is part of our life of worship to God. He is still the one and only Lord of our lives. And so any instructions that we've heard about submission or obedience, you know, it doesn't elevate those parties to the place of Christ. You know, be it husbands or parents or slave masters, none of us is called to function as lords. Instead, all our relationships are to be founded on our reverence for Christ as the one true God. He is the one who has our ultimate allegiance. And he is the one who is our ultimate model for servanthood. The God who came not to be served, but to serve, who gave himself up for us. So church, let us love one another for he first loved us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for our glorious servant king who made himself nothing that we might have everything in you. Lord, we thank you for the amazing love and grace that you have lavished on us, Lord. And we pray, Father, that you would fill us afresh with your love, that you would remind us of it and that you would lead us in your love to those around us that we would seek to be Christ to others, to love as you have loved us. Lord, in a world that is just so obsessed with power and control, Lord, help us to be radically countercultural, to walk as Jesus did, to prioritise the needs of the other, to walk humbly as children of life. Lord, for the times where we have dug our heels in, where we've cared more about being right than loving the other, where we have perhaps been more concerned about having power or control than exercising humility. Oh, Father, have mercy. Forgive us, Lord, and fill us afresh with your grace. Lord, for the times where we have been hurt by those who have misused their power against us, for when our needs have been overlooked, where there is hurt, where there are wounds, Lord, we ask for your healing and fill us fresh. Lord, we thank you for your love and we thank you for your grace. Lord, as we go out into this week as your people, help us to walk as Jesus did. May all our lives be lived in reverence to Christ, our glorious servant King. Lord, for all that you are and all that you have done, we thank you and we pray this in your name. Amen.